Romans chapter 15, the Apostle Paul has just written to and addressed the Roman church, and as he writes them and he addresses them, he draws to the conclusion of his letter, and in chapter 14 he begins a conversation concerning uh, Christian liberty, and he explains to them that they are uh, treating one another improperly, and they're not caring for and loving one another well as they should. Chapter 15 is going to continue the same idea, and I think that it's about unity, and, and if you will, the theme is that the believers serve one another as Christ modeled for the glory of God. So um, uh, Paul is writing, and he's trying to get across to the Roman believers that there is this need for them to care for and to demonstrate their care for one another by pleasing one another. Now, uh, by that he is not uh, asserting that or suggesting that. You and I should um, go against God's word, but rather that we should be willing to give up our rights in order to advance the spiritual growth of one another, and as we do so, to glorify God. If you would, let's, let's go to Lord in order of prayer, and then we will um, continue on. Father, we do thank you for uh, this passage. We thank you for... Um, the truth that it contains that you have a desire for us to um, go against our natural character of looking out for self and uh, seeking to advance our own agenda and you instruct us instead to follow your example and to seek to care and seek to uh, please one another. We pray that as we meditate on this passage that you would help us to indeed develop that same type of mindset and that as we do so that you would be honored and that you would be glorified and that the world would be in awe of our love and care for one another. In your name we pray. Amen. Alright. It's still... Uh, is it the battery you think? I'll come and get it. Alright. Uh, so he, he begins with the, the theme the believers serve one another. Oops. That's scary. All right. It begins with the theme, the believers serve one another as uh, modeled by Christ, and then they do this for the glory of God. And as he does so, he begins by explaining to them that there is a command. And so um, the, the command is going to begin, I don't think I read the passage, did I? Let's read the passage, and then we'll, I'm, yeah, all right, let's read the passage. Romans chapter 15, verses 1 through verse 13. We then, who are strong, ought to bear with the scruples of the weak, and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we, through the patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another, according to Christ Jesus, that you may, with one mind and one mouth, glorify 
the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, receive one another, just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Now I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God, to confirm the promises made to the fathers, and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written. For this reason I will confess to you among the Gentiles, and sing to your name. And again he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Laud him, all you peoples. And again, Isaiah says, There shall be a root of Jesse, and he shall rise to reign over the Gentiles. And him the Gentiles shall hope. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> all right, so that is the um, instruction. That's the, that's the passage, and it, it's following up on uh, very, very similar concepts from chapter 14 um, into chapter 15. And so what he's calling for is he's calling for unity as we serve and care for one another, as we seek to appease and um, edify one another as we care about each other. So he begins with a command. It's still not working? No? All right. I'm going to not worry about it. And uh, if you really desperately want notes, um, you got email. All right. The command is to please one another. And so he begins in verses 1 and 2, and he's going to assert this command. And it's building off of what we have, uh, what we have in, in before that. We then, who are strong, ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. So he begins and he's saying that the mature believer should care for the immature believer. And as they care for the immature believer, they're going to make their aim, their goal in life to um, serve others. Okay, So they, they aim to serve and not to appease their own desires, but rather to serve and to minister to and to care for one another. Paul goes so far as to say, let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. And I, I really think that the edification is not the edification of you primarily, but primarily the edification of those to whom you are um, seeking to please by being willing to conform your pattern of life to what they believe may be more beneficial or more valuable. So genuine, deep care for others leads to edification. And that's just the, the command part. And now Paul, after he's given us this command, he's going to go on and he's going to say, you don't just have this command. Because the command by itself um, is somewhat weak. And so he's going to move on, and as he moves on, he says, you actually have an example. And your example is Jesus Christ. And you also have... The model of scripture. What is scripture there for? And he says, both of these things together are examples for you and I as we say, how do I go about living my life in such a way that I promote the unity of the body of Christ by seeking to serve my fellow brother and sister in Christ for their good, for their edification. And so he, he says... First of all, look at 
the example that we have in Christ Jesus. And so he says um, in verse 3, For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. So Jesus Christ then is the great example of seeking others' benefits. And so um, what, what did Jesus do in acquiring your benefit, uh, acquiring your uh, positive standing? Jesus died for you. And, and, and it's interesting because Paul doesn't come out right and just say, you know, Jesus died for you, and that's for your greatest benefit that you could ever receive, right? Most of us are concerned about some benefits in life, right? Um, it's, it's not uncommon for an employee to ask an employer about benefits, right? Or to at least take that into consideration when they consider their compensation package. We're concerned about those things. And what he's saying is this is your greatest benefit, and it was accomplished by Jesus Christ. He was looking out for your benefit, for your edification, for your growth. But he doesn't come out right and say, Jesus Christ accomplished all this by dying for you. Instead, he references something that was leading up to his death. He says, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. What happened is Jesus was being taken to the point of death. He is being mocked and spat upon and all those other evil things that are happening to him are ultimately going to lead up to what? The moment where Jesus Christ dies for your sins so that he can raise again and so that you can have hope in Christ. And he says, Christ is our example. This is what we should strive for. This is what we are yearning for and looking to see happen in our own body of Christ. At Emmanuel Baptist Church, we want to have that kind of care for one another. We are willing to put up with reproaches and insults and other negative type of things from others. Why? Because we care so deeply about the spiritual growth and maturity of other believers. And so he describes Christ... But then he moves on and he says, it's, it's not just that Christ is an example. Now, Christ is within recent history, you know, the last 30 years or so, Christ has walked this world. It would not be unheard of that some of the Roman church have met people firsthand who, who walked with Christ and saw some of these illustrations of Christ's love and care for the church. But he says, it's not, it's not just that, because the models of scripture are for our spiritual growth as well. So, so in verse 4 he says, For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that through the patience or the, or the um, endurance and the comfort of the scriptures, what? You and I might have hope. And he's going to bring this idea back up again. This idea of hope. And so he says, what? You and I, as we walk through this life, just like those people that are recorded in Scripture, 
What, what, is, what does Abraham do? Abraham is promised by God, this is what is going to happen to you. I'm going to give you this land. And your descendants are going to have this land. And Abraham goes to that land and he walks in that land and lives in that land. And he has a tent in that land. And years go by before he has that son finally. We are talking about this same illustration in one of the uh, sermons at the conference. And the preacher, I think it was Doug Brown, referenced the fact that it was 25 years before Abraham has his son. And he looks at like all the college students on this side and on that side, and he's like, how many of you were alive um, 25 years ago? And like, you know, not many college students are alive 25 years ago. It's a long time to wait for the fulfillment of a promise. What do you see, though, characterized in Abraham's life? It's, it's faith. It's, it's faith that God will fulfill, that God will accomplish what he has promised. He endured. And as he endured, he found, found comfort in the scriptures. And the same thing could be said over and over and over again. This is what scripture challenges you and I to do. To place our faith and our trust in God's sovereign power and to trust that he will fulfill his promises. And so in the, in the midst of uh, disagreement or a frustration with a church member who like, I just, I really don't want to care about this person because they frustrate me to, you know, the highest degree possible. I don't understand why they do whatever that is. What's he saying? As we endure that, and we endure that looking to Scripture for the comfort to be able to persevere with one another, what happens? We find hope, and we continue on. And so he says, you have these two great examples. And pursuing these patterns of Scripture, and the pattern of Christ produces hope. And so Christ then provides a single mission for all believers. And I believe that that mission is that we pursue this one-mindedness. Look with me in the following verses. In verse 4, he's already told us that, okay, we have the example of Christ in verse 3. In verse 4, hey, look at Scripture. Scripture tells us about the comfort and the endurance that is found in the narratives of Scripture, and these will produce hope. Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another. What does that mean? It means we have to have this united mind, this unity, this shared goal, and the shared ambition toward one another, according to Christ Jesus. And so your mission and my mission as, as believers is that we would pursue one-mindedness. And so he, he says, this is the goal. The command is to please others. And he's not talking about sinning so that other people are happy. 
but he is talking about being willing to give up what are your perceived rights for the benefit and the growth of the body of Christ. And then he goes on and he says, this is the goal, right? Because for, for me to give up what I believe is a perceived right in any situation, I have to have faith that there is a higher goal than me in the midst of that situation, right? Because, I mean, any relationships requires that, right? Why, why do we do hard things in relationships? We believe that accomplishing that hard thing, that hard thing, you know, can be a different hard thing and not necessarily really a hard thing. Um, could be just a hard thing in that situation. Like how many of you not wanted to do dishes before? Or, you know, cook a meal or got and shovel snow again for the however many time this season, right? Why do we do that? We do that because it's demonstrating our love and our care in this relationship and it's promoting the health and the vitality of this relationship. And, and so what Paul says is, okay, this is a big mission, right? Because to be able to put up with the frustrating things that we all do to each other, the wear in our relationships, to be able to be putting, putting up with each other ongoing requires a huge goal, right? I can't just have a, a goal that, you know, I'll stay united with you and we'll all be happy, happy, because that doesn't look very appeasing when I'm frustrated with you because you are clicking your pen for the, you know, umpteenth time. So what is the goal? What is, what is the big purpose behind all this? Why do we do this? And he says the goal of all this is that you and I, as we please one another, would glorify God. Look at verse 6 and then follow that through as he continues to develop this idea. Verse 6 says, That you may with one mind and one mouth Glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he doesn't stop this idea of glory. He continues to point to the idea of God's glory as he goes all the way through verse 12. He's going to go back to the example of Jesus Christ. And what did Jesus Christ do? And what was the result of that? He's going to say Jesus Christ followed through his mission even though it was difficult. Why? so that even more people could be brought into this circle of praising and glorifying God. Therefore, receive one another. He reminds us once again of the command, and he tells us that grace abounds. And he says that grace abounds in our example of Jesus Christ. Grace abounds in the instruction that we have in Scripture. Grace abounds in this unified mind. This is all possible, not because of you and I, but because of Jesus Christ. And he says, all this should lead to the glory of Jesus Christ. God's grace then results in a unified body of believers. God's grace results in the proclamation of God's glory. And the command then is restated. That's in verse 7. Therefore, receive one another, just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. What's he talking about? I think to the glory of God is once again picking up on the same idea that as we pursue unity, 
Christ, God the Father, is glorified. So receive one another. Please one another. Pursue this united mind together. Bear with one another, even though it's difficult. He goes on and he says, Now I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God, to confirm the promises made to the fathers, and, and what? What do the Jews always want to say? They always wanted to talk about how they are the chosen people. And yet there's constant reference in the Old Testament to this idea that the Gentiles are going to be included in the praise and glory of God the Father. And he says, Jesus Christ came and he did what he did. Why? So that the Gentiles who had been kept afar off and had that dividing wall and could not come and praise God as freely so that they could come and do so. And then he cites all these Old Testament passages of Scripture with the intent and purpose of showing us that this is what Jesus has accomplished. And in fact, you Romans, that's who you are. You're Romans. You're not Jews. Why are you, as Romans, able to even have this conversation to begin with? It's because of how Jesus chose to serve you. How can you not then choose to serve one another in a very similar way? And so he goes on and he says, This is the demonstration, and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written. For this reason I will confess to you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Loud him with all all you peoples. And again, Isaiah says, There shall be a root of Jesse, and he shall rise to reign over who? The Gentiles. And the idea is, as as Paul is quoting it, is it's not this heavy-handed, mean reign of terror that you know everybody's like fearful of. No. What's the context telling us? This is a glorious, wonderful reign, and Jesus, the Jewish king, will care for and ensure that the Gentiles have a far better life than they ever had under a Gentile king. God receives the glory as we choose to set aside our own perceived rights and please one another. To serve one another. To to bear with one another is what he's saying. In him the Gentiles shall hope. You see he brings up that word once again. And he's, he's not done using that word. And so this is the goal. The goal is far larger than, you know, just so that we don't have a church split. He could have said that. He doesn't say that. Hey, listen, Romans, you guys are very much in the in the balance here. You could actually have First Baptist Church on the north side of town and Second Baptist Church on the south side of town if you don't straighten up. Wouldn't it be sad if you split up over that? And it was the cause of carpet color or something as silly as that? But he doesn't say that, right? Instead, what he says is, God's glory is worth you for bearing with one another and laying aside your perceived rights. 
what he's doing is he's elevating Christ. He's elevating God the Father. And he says, he is worthy. You are not. Get over yourself. Right? He moves on and he says, there's a result to all this. What is the result to all of this? Oh, sorry, the command is restated. I haven't kept up with my notes, have I? Um, Jesus himself served this so that, the, that God may be glorified, and the Gentiles praise, find hope in, and glorify God. So then the result is in verse 13. And he's referenced this result throughout the passage. We saw the result referenced in um, verse 4. We saw the, the hope referenced in verse 4. We once again see it referenced in verse 12, and now in verse 13. Now, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. You see that? Isn't it unique? Isn't it, isn't it fascinating that what Paul is saying is you and I choose to lay aside what we perceive as most valuable to us, right? Because it's easy for me to lay aside things that I don't hope in, that I don't find valuable. If, if that's what he was writing them and telling them, lay aside those things, why would he spend the time to handwrite this letter and this part specifically? He's obviously addressing things that they valued, they cared about, and they thought would provide them with hope. He says those things won't satisfy. He says lay those aside, and as you do so, you will glorify God, and in giving up your rights and pursuing the pleasing and the receiving of the unity with the body of Christ, then and only then will you find hope that is found in none other but Jesus Christ. That's what he is, he is explaining in this passage. So there's the command, there's the example, there's the, the goal, and then there is the hope. Verse 13, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. So the hope of the Lord Jesus Christ provides you and I with joy and peace. When we choose to get the attention off of our own perceived needs, our own perceived desires and wants, and focus our attention on the greatness of our God and the need for the world to glorify Him, what happens? You and I have joy and we have these are things that the world promises us and the world points us to all sorts of things and says, this, right over here, this will provide you joy and this will provide you peace. And about when you begin to realize this doesn't, what does the world do? It points at something else and says, this, this is the newer, better. This is the iPhone, I don't know what model we're on, 12. This will provide you joy and peace. And it doesn't work. Or you could put car in there, sex, or house, or on and on and on. None of those things are bad. It's okay to have a nice football. It's okay to have a nice house. It's okay to have a nice car. I'm not, I'm not mad about any of those things. But if we pursue those things as an end of our hope and our peace, we will come up short. Why? Because what he's saying is hope and peace come as a result of you and I pursuing unity in the body of Christ. He then says, hope originates in the Lord Jesus Christ. And for us to look for it anywhere else other than in submission to Christ and actually 
submission to one another, we will come up empty-handed. <clears throat> so what does Paul instruct you and I to do? How, how are we supposed to live this coming week as a result of Paul's instruction to the Roman church? I think that there are a few big ideas. I think he's telling them to strive to serve fellow believers sacrificially. It's hard. You and I will not naturally, easily find ourselves sacrificially serving and caring for one another in the way that Paul describes. Just like you actually probably, at least when you first got married, didn't naturally serve your spouse as sacrificially as you do today, right? You've grown, you've matured, you've developed in this area. You're going to have to work at it. And there are going to be many times where your flesh will tell you, you know, what would really provide me with joy and hope and peace in this situation is for me to pursue my own path. What Paul writes the Roman church, he says, no, no, you're far too self-centered. You need to refocus on Christ's mission to bring glory to God the Father. And as you choose to model and follow that same example, you too will find hope. You will find joy. You will find peace. He says, know your Lord. It's interesting. His, his focus is very much so on who? He's, he's writing to the, the Romans and he's telling them to do something drastically different from what they've been doing. I mean, we actually look at the amount of space that Paul spends to tell them, get over yourselves, care lovingly for one another, especially in this section. A, a huge portion of it isn't actually spent telling them directly, get over yourself. A huge portion of this is spent telling them, Look at who God is. Look at who Jesus Christ has provided you. Look at what Jesus Christ was accomplishing as he came to the world, and he chose to go to the cross for your sins. Was the accomplishment and the proclamation and the demonstration of God's glory to the nations. And so for you and I to develop the same type of heart towards one another and to be willing to serve one another as Paul is describing it's going to require that you and I know our Lord and know what he's accomplished for us and what that has accomplished in the world. It's the proclamation of the name of God. Praise God for Jesus' service and our own transformation. Rejoice in a sure and steadfast hope. And so one of the things that I'm trying to be more intentional with is um, give you some practical things that uh, maybe those are specific ways that you could carry out some of this. Because this is, this is all, in a, in a way, vague, right? There's nothing specific. There's nothing concrete um, here. And, and so as you think about this, you will encounter difficult situations with one another. 
They, they may not be the most difficult situation this week that you will encounter. But you will encounter difficult situations. It may be something that's uh, constant noise that's happening in service. Um, like, like a child screaming and you're like, I just want to eat the child. Um, I love you, Anastasia. Um, but what are we called to do? We're called to bear with one another. Okay. <laughs> we bear with difficult people and we love them just as Christ has loved us. That is what it means to strive with one another. This week, one of the things that you and I should strive to do is we should strive to know our God. You might do that, practically speaking, by spending time this week meditating once again on this passage. You might do that this week by having a cup of coffee with another member of the Emmanuel Baptist Church and say, hey, let's get together and talk about this specific passage. Or maybe you get together with your accountability partner for Bible reading and you say, hey, what have you been learning this last month? Starting week seven, right? It's a lot of scripture we've read. What's, what's God been teaching you? What's God been teaching your family as you've read these passages of scripture? We ought to be involved in one another's lives and encouraging one another to know Christ. And not simply to know, but to have that be knowledge that is actually being applied in a meaningful, purposeful way. It's actually knowledge applied as wisdom. Another thing that you and I could do is rejoice in the evidence of God's transformation. As you come on Wednesday and we ask about praises and we ask about things like that, you might be able to point to a specific area of your life in which God has worked and has been transforming you into His likeness. Maybe an area where, you know, you can't get too much details because, you know, if you share too many difficult details about, you know, Joe Blow at church that frustrates you and um, how God has helped you to change um, in a public way, that might cause more harm than it does good. But you, you could be be kind and loving without referencing the specific situation and point to the fact that Christ has been working in you and transforming you and you're becoming more like Jesus Christ. What is the result of hearing testimonies of people's lives being changed? You find yourself typically challenged by the testimony, right? As we went to the conference last week, there were multiple occasions where various speakers pointed us to various individuals and their testimonies and their faithfulness through the midst of difficult situations. And as you listen to those past stories, sometimes from scripture, sometimes you listen to those past stories of people that lived you know, relatively recently, like 300 years ago, um, what happens? You say, I want to do that too, right? Because you don't want to get to the end of your life and go, you know, this guy, he really failed to demonstrate faithfulness and he just, at the end of his life, he crashed and burned. Nobody hears that story and goes, you know, that's really the testimony that I want my life to be. No, instead you say, I want to pursue 
that testimony. I want my life to demonstrate transformation and growth and maturity. And so as we as we tell each other about those, it's a source of encouragement and strengthening, edifying one another. And then finally, rejoice in the hope of Jesus Christ. Nothing else satisfies. Paul says the primary goal for giving up your rights is not simply so that the church doesn't split and there's not a first Baptist and a second Baptist in town. The primary goal is that the Lord would be glorified, that he would be magnified. And therein is hope. Rejoice in that hope. In the midst of all the challenges that 2021 will produce, now there will be many, you will disagree with people um, next week about things like masks and vaccines and, and, and. It's not going to go away next week. But in the midst of all our disagreements and our frustrations, we have the common hope of Jesus Christ. And in that, we have joy and we have peace. Father, we do thank you for the unity that you call us to. We pray that as we see the differences and the disagreements that we have with one another, that you would help us to humble ourselves, to refocus our attention on your glory, your splendor, and that we would pursue you above all else. We pray that as we do so, that you would be glorified and that our hope would be assured of in you, that we would find our joy and our peace in you. In your name we pray.